This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 8. Tonight we'll be discussing the September lineup from the Criterion Collection. Joining me tonight, I have a panel of Criterion folks. I have David Blakesley. Good evening, David. Hello, Ryan. Keith Enright. Hey, Keith. Hey, Ryan. And Scott and I. Hi, Scott. Hello. Tonight we have a very busy month of titles to discuss. There are uh, six new releases in the collection this month, as well as two reissues or an upgrade and a downgrade. And uh, so we have a lot to talk about. So listeners, um, we have a lot to talk about in a very limited amount of time as we are recording, you know, very late for the folks on the East Coast. And uh, I also have other podcasts to record after we are done with this one. So we might not get too in-depth with the releases this month. And there are definitely some titles here that deserve much more time than we're going to give them. Uh, One of them we actually did a whole recent episode on, which will be going up soon. Uh, We recorded a whole uh, real, you know, full episode on the story of the last chrysanthemum, which will be going up probably before this episode goes up. Um, But, you know, things like the Decalogue and Blood Simple and, you know, Cat People, Valley of the Dolls, all this stuff deserves much longer episodes than what we're about to give them tonight. But uh, this is just a kind of an overview of our thoughts on the releases uh, from Criterion during September. So around this time back in, I think it was June when uh, they, these these titles were announced, uh, I had Keith and Aaron on to talk about them. And now I have Keith back again uh, to discuss these a little bit more in depth now that we've had the time to actually see them i'm still exhausted from just talking about it now i've had to watch all the damn things (laughs) yeah and this has been uh an exhausting month of stuff i feel like we just recorded the last episode of chronicles where we talked about the titles from august and here we are again doing the same thing for september these months are uh, flying by yeah and august was manageable you know we we talked about how mccabe and mrs miller got postponed and that actually made the workload you know a lot easier to fit in and maybe it was summertime but uh, yeah for september i'm just saturated you know i've been doing a lot of podcasting and other things as well but very very difficult for me to keep up with all the stuff that's come out especially uh, towards that last week of the month yeah let's be very clear that we're not complaining here <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like we have this deadline where after, you know, after we record this episode, we are no longer allowed to watch any of these movies ever again. We have to, our, our chance is now gone. We know we can't watch, uh, you know, we have to return all these movies back to the library. Into the mothballs. <laughs> <series. laughs> all right. So the first release of the month from Criterion was the Blu-ray upgrade of Night Train to Munich, Carol Reed's 1940 film. As, as mentioned previously, we have discussed this film uh, in more depth back on an old episode of the Criterion cast, but uh, since then I've found this movie to be much more enjoyable than what I did back then. Uh, I, you know, in rewatching it, you know, the, the Blu-ray obviously looks so much better than the DVD. They, give, you know, has more depth. It has more, uh, you know, a much cleaner image, I think. It's, I think also having time in between when I last watched that DVD, I feel like this movie has... Um, I'm able to like appreciate it more. I'm able to like, just enjoy it. I think at the time when I was watching the DVD, I felt like it was, it was closer to when we discussed the third man. And so it was closer to when I had like first watched the third man and, and, you know, gotten into thinking like, well, how could Carol read? Like, you know, how is this the same director? It didn't feel like the same director. Um, but really this is movie came out 
years before the third man. And so, you know, and this was also like his, his 12th movie. All that is to say that I really enjoyed uh, going back and rewatching Night Train to Munich on Blu-ray. Um, if you uh, are a fan of Carol Reed or if you're a fan of, you know, any number of the folks involved with this movie, I think, you know, Margaret Lockwood and Rex Harrison, like this is uh, a pretty fun movie you know, in retrospect, I think. It's interesting that you mentioned not liking it as much the first time. I, I've seen this twice on the DVD. I have not revisited it since the Blu-ray came out, but I remember very distinctly watching it years ago when it came out on DVD and kind of saying, well, that that's okay. And then I showed it to my girlfriend and her parents just about a year ago, and I loved it the second time, and it was their first time, and they all said, ah, it's okay. So <laughs> it's... I think they they need to do one more viewing, but uh, yeah, I, I find it especially on second view, viewing. I found it very enjoyable, just a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of this, uh, you know, trying to rescue this scientist from the Nazis, and you know, the the, the train ride and uh, cable car ride uh, in their escape. One of the funniest bits of discussion I saw uh, about this release was when the folks at the Criterion Forum saw the packaging for the film, someone finally realized, and I actually didn't go back to check the DVD to see if this was the same, but on the interior of the Blu-ray case, like behind the cover is a map of Europe and people started, you know, getting off on a whole tangent about how the map was a current map of Europe and not the actual map (laughs) from, from 1940 when this movie uh, was taking place and so it seems uh, like they should have gone they should have corrected this mistake in the with the blu-ray release i thought i remembered eric skillman doing a mia culpa on that a few years ago but maybe that's just wishful thinking no i'll have to go back and add the a link to he must have done one of those process posts on his blog i think that's what it was uh, a long time ago remembering right interesting um, so i guess they he even though he noted it then <laughs> they didn't fix it for this release <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'd say for everyone out there, if you if you haven't seen it before or if you if you have seen it before, maybe give it another chance uh with this new Blu-ray release. So, I think it's uh definitely worth an upgrade. I'll just say I'm waiting for another half off sale before I upgrade to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know this was this week uh a lot of people, I guess over the past few weeks, a lot of people have been very uh, itchy about the fact that Criterion hasn't had their, you know, somewhat regular uh, flash sale right around this time. Although, you know, it could still happen. But it, you know, this they've week they've been busy with other things too. You know, they yeah. were busy yes. this week. <laughs> I know. So you know, I guess everyone out there, like, you know, just give it a little time. And if if they don't do it this year or they don't do it this month. Uh, the Barnes and Noble sale is just like th- three weeks away, maybe even less than that. So yes, maybe they're probably just stockpiling a small mountain of decalogues because they know that they will be flying once the fifty percent off yeah. uh, sale hits. Good point. So the next release, the next uh, re-release from Criterion, the Zadoichi Blu-ray downgrade uh, from the dual format now to a Blu-ray release. This one, um, I don't know very many people who have actually gone out and bought this new blu-ray release i don't think any of us here on the podcast have this new uh single format edition uh, of the zadoichi box set although i have seen one picture on the criterion reddit thread 
which featured uh, someone had actually gone out and bought the set. And so they, we were able to see like a picture of like, yes, this is the same style packaging, although it is just a little bit thinner uh, on the shelf. I actually saw it. I was in the store this evening on the way home from work and I, I saw it with my, my own eyes and uh, yeah, it's just, it's about an inch and a half thinner and it, it, it's a nice sleek looking package. I just still to this day kind of wish that if they were going to go Blu-ray only that they might've, you know, made it to fit on a shelf, but uh, it's, it's still nice looking. Since uh, Moises takes credit for the blue grade term, we need to consult him for what the new term is for these downgrades. I think down. I like downgrade. Downgrade is my is <laughs> is, is but like blue has to be incorporated somehow. <laughs> uh, no, I will credit I, Keith. I got the, the blues grade there. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, in just in you know thinking about that box set again, it was that box set is still gorgeous. Uh, and you know, they really went all out with the, with getting all of those different artists to contribute to, you know, the individual pieces for all of that stuff. And, um, I, I mean, I don't have any intentions of buying a Blu-ray only version of it. I don't need the space. No. And I just, uh, you know, I have all the films and I don't, I don't need to rebuy them or sell the one that I have in order to get a smaller one. Um, I guess like Keith was saying, it might've been nice if they had, a lot of people have problems with the their use of um, like the the sleeves that they use, like the cardboard sleeves inside that you're sliding the discs in and out of. Um, although those people just have problems with that style of packaging in general, and not it's not specifically, you know, for the Zadoichi set. It's like anytime any DVD manufacturer uses a, a a packaging style like that, you know, where you're sliding discs in and out, you're inevitably like causing some kind of, you know damage over time to the fit to the plastic so you know it's not it's not ideal and some people like to take all their discs out and put them in you know like actual snapper cases so that they you know don't have to actually like slide them in and out but i don't know i don't see criterion you know going back and replacing the packaging for something like that i mean i own these movies and i watch them repeatedly but i don't take them in and out so many times that i'm really going to be all that worried about it well we'll see how we'll come back to this uh this topic in 10 or 20 years and see 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 how it's scratched up i mean the blu-rays are you know much less prone to scratching than than dvds are like you know you see some DVDs uh, out there that are just, they look like, you know, people have taken like sandpaper to them or something. I don't know. Like, you know, you see DVDs from like the library or, you know, video stores or, or Netflix and they just look uh, terrible. But Blu-rays managed to hold up a little bit better, I think. Yeah. Every Netflix I ever got looked like it was drugged through the desert before I got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if this, you know, how well this set does, uh, over the Barnes and Noble sale. If a lot of people do end up going who, you know, maybe never bought the dual format release. Um, I mean, they didn't lower the price at all for this new downgrade. So it doesn't, uh, I don't know. I guess it'll be interesting to see how well it does or if it, if it brings in new audiences or a new audience of people who, uh, were holding out for this slimmer package. Really, it's just uh, kind of a you know a standard reissue. Now that they're no longer doing dual format, they've presumably sold out their stock, and so you know it was it was done in such a way as to say, well, we're going to keep the titles in print and you know keep the keep the movies available in a you know pretty similar, pretty comparable package. 
Um, and you know, so so fans who uh, maybe didn't get in on the first release, uh, they've got their chance now for for now and, and for years to come. So mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty much kind of an inevitable move, I guess, at some point. Yeah. Uh, for anyone out there who is interested in hearing more discussion of uh, the Zadoichi films, uh, the folks that uh, you know, our friends at the Criterion Close Up, have recently done an episode, uh, episode forty-eight, which came out um, about a month ago now. They did uh, an episode all about Zadoichi, and uh, I also wanted to mention the Blind Podsman, a Zadoichi oh, yeah. podcast. Yeah, uh, right. So they are already at episode seven. Um, which was just released on September 22nd. So it seems like they're they're keeping at it, doing one every every two to three weeks, I think. But uh, these guys, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. But um, you know, it's definitely an interesting undertaking, and I wonder what they'll do once they get through um, the pot. You know, I guess it's a nice. Uh, it's not really a limited run since there are so many films to watch, but you know, it's nice to have an end date or, you know, like a goal, like a, an end in the, in view when you're, when you're jumping into a podcast like this. Yes. That's pretty much the story of the eclipse viewer as well. So, uh, you know, and it's, it is, it's, it is kind of a nice feeling as you kind of bring that up of just saying, okay, at some point we'll have sort of a closed set and we'll move on to other things. It'll be kind of a happy day. Although a bittersweet one, uh, we've still got a few more months left in this, but, uh, yeah, we'll keep it going. Well, if you stretch out these episodes to two or three episodes, then it makes it a little bit longer. Well, we do. We do have some heavy hitters coming up, so we'll be uh, milking it. It's kind of like, you know, those franchise sequels when the last book in the series gets <laughs> spread into two different movies. <laughs> We're doing The Hobbit here, right? Yeah. All right. So the next release of the month, the first of the you know real new films being added to the collection, although this one was... Uh, on the Hulu channel for quite some time, as we mentioned, uh, the story of the last chrysanthemum. Now we just actually a couple weeks ago, or last week was it that we recorded a whole episode uh, discussing this film, and uh, it was a, a pretty delightful release. As I mentioned on the podcast last week, this is the uh, to date this is the only pre-war Japanese film that's been committed to Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection, and just that alone kind of makes it a scarce commodity, uh, simply because, you know, Japanese film uh, was not necessarily as well-preserved, and certainly the the rigors and, you know, harrowing uh, tragedies of the war uh, probably was one of the reasons that there are so few films from that time uh, still still remaining, still extant. Uh, but this is definitely Mizuguchi's first, you know, uh, you know, compelling masterwork. Now, we kind of did this in the context of the uh, the Kenji Mizuguchi Eclipse series set. Uh, Scott and I uh, covered the first two, uh, Sisters of the Gion and Osaka Elegy, which were done a few years before this one. But this really is a pretty pretty powerful example of, of Mizuguchi's emerging mastery. Uh, he had been making films for, you know, you know, quite a few years. He really started in the early 20s in the silent era, and had you know, more than 50 films under his belt. But most of those are long gone, and, and uh, all we can do is read about them at this point, uh, what little is known of them. But this one here is uh, pretty epic in scale, over two hours long. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a popular novel in Japan. This is a story that was presumably pretty well known to audiences. 
it was set kind of in the 1890s, the Meiji era, as it was known. Uh, and so it's 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 got kind of a theatrical component to it. It's about an actor who's been adopted by a prominent uh, figure in the kabuki uh, tradition uh, of that time. Uh, he has a falling out with his family because he uh, he falls in love with a uh, with a with a nursemaid, a servant woman who's you know kind of beneath his social station. Uh, but she speaks truth to him, and she she uh, encourages his artistry. And uh, he he finds something you know very refreshing and compelling about that relationship, which forces him to you know uh, you know come at odds with with the expectations of a of a young man of sort of a noble pedigree and uh, a higher social class and expectation. Uh, so that that's kind of the the melodramatic uh, substance of the story, but it's really how the story is told and just the the beauty of of the scenes, the the performances. And and just the emotional power of it all, uh, uh, Mizuguchi really was quite a, you know, quite a remarkable filmmaker. He's he's using his cameras, and uh, you know, staging scenes in, in some very, uh, you know, very unique, very striking ways. And so this is a film that I'm, you know, really enthusiastic about. I mean, there's a <laughs> this is a pretty full spectrum month for what Criterion is all about, uh, but this is probably you know, I would argue is probably the closest to that, you know, classical old school art house uh, tradition that Criterion is so well known for. And, and even though it, it may be a bit of a modest release and that there's not a ton of supplements, um, and you know, it's an older black and white film, it's kind of a slower moving, a little bit more subdued, uh, but still a very exciting release and one I'm really encouraged and, and, and positive about, uh, criterion taking that step and certainly hoping to see more of this mid-period Mizuguchi, uh, which there's still quite a few films that are Hulu only right now and presumably will be filmstruck only, you know, fairly soon. But uh, I'd like to see them, uh, you know, continue to round out uh, Mizuguchi films of this era and perhaps more of that, uh, you, know, you know, pre-war and wartime Japanese cinema, uh, whatever relics they can buff up and present in nice editions uh, would be very welcome on, on my end. I'm sure many others feel the same way. Yeah. In addition to kind of the type of movie it is just the uh, release itself, like you said, being such a slim release and obviously no full booklet. This really gave me flashbacks to the old days of Criterion where you'd be paying over $20 for something that sometimes had no supplements at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're just getting it for the movie and the presentation itself. But as you said, I think the movie more than stands up to, Whatever price you have to pay for it, I think it's a wonderful movie and one that really rewards repeat viewings. Yeah, it it, it reminded me in a way, in a in a kind of in a similar but different way to when we talked about, you know, Criterion asking full price for, um, that uh, what was the the Holocaust documentary that we talked about a couple months ago, um, Night and oh, Fog. Night and Fog. Yeah. Yeah, and so like you know what you're. You, you know, placing value on running time or supplements and, um, and how we kind of, you know, we as like, you know, the criterion, the generic criterion collector have kind of been spoiled by criterion's lavish editions of, you know, filled with supplements and extra, you know, versions of the films and whatnot. And so you're just getting so many minutes for your dollar. Whereas like this one, you're getting the film, not in a perfect pristine condition, and not with a whole lot of supplements for you know the full 
price of a Criterion release. And but yeah, it, 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 there's something kind of r- refreshing, and I don't know, it's it's nice to have to not have something like look perfect or not be pristine to kind of like you know it maybe takes you back to like those early years of collecting when things when you had to just watch whatever was available to you and like you know that was it like there's no there's nothing better like they won't be able to find anything better uh any other better version of a film than this yeah there's definitely some of the uh you know the hollywood uh films that criterion's released uh, of the same era 1930s that, that really do glisten and pop and, and have that sharp resolution. You're just not going to see that here. So, you know, don't, you know, maybe this is a, a fair warning. Uh, it's still, there's a very beautiful, luminous quality to so many of these scenes. Uh, it's just not as, you know, sharply defined as, as, you know, as some of the other films that, you know, did benefit from much better preservation and restoration. Yeah, I'm not sure what exact source materials Criterion had access to, but I'm sure it wasn't you know, a pristinely preserved, you know, original negative or anything of that sort. They they had to make do. But, you know, if you compare it with the Hulu transfer uh, to the Blu-ray here, it's it's an enormous uh, revelatory difference. It really is. I We had company this weekend, and I didn't have access to the TV room Sunday night, so I watched this on Hulu on my iPad in bed, and wow. And, you know, just to go through and look at it a couple nights ago on the disc, it you know, it's not perfect, but it's it's leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds if ahead of what they had on Hulu prior. The restoration was done by Shochiku in Japan, and uh, they did release their own version of the Blu-ray back in February of this year. Um, and uh, I think the comparison shots that I've seen is that it's you know they're using that same transfer, but. Um, you know they're 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 tweaking the levels a little bit here and there, and um, as we mentioned in the main episode discussion on it, like you know it's it's pretty dark in places, and you know so, sometimes it's not always clear, you know like or sometimes it's hard to even see like who's who's talking in a scene, um, and sometimes the music is a little too loud uh, and overpowering over against the the dialogue, um, but I think giving it you know a couple of viewings really paying attention to what's going on it is very rewarding to you know sit through this movie i think i've yeah. I, I really enjoyed it in spite of all that there's a hell of a movie that breaks through yeah and the and you know the one supplement on there the interview with philip Lopate, uh talking about mizuguchi and this film in particular um and, you know it's not a whole lot of context for the film but it's something and i found it enjoyable i did too and you know this is a nice uh going quickly to the the cover art it fits in very nicely with the other Mizuguchi films uh that they've released you know when you if you are a collector who maybe shelves by director uh with your with your discs this one you know they they look nice together on the shelf this one alongside you know Life of a Haru and um Ugetsu and um Sancho the Bailiff and whatnot. Yeah, and speaking of Ugetsu, I guess there's a new 4K uh, edition kind of hitting theaters now, uh, maybe a limited run, but that I saw an announcement somewhere today or yesterday, uh, and that gets my hopes up for a, a much-needed Blu-ray upgrade of that film. It's a beautiful masterpiece. I think that one played at Cannes in the Cannes Classics lineup this year, 
And yeah, Janice just tweeted uh, earlier this morning about the new the new tour of it. So yeah, I think that one is has to be on the horizon for a Blu-ray upgrade. Next up, on September 20th, Criterion released the 1942 film from Jacques Tourneur and Val Luton, Cat People. Now this is one, um, it was, this one was teased at in the email newsletter drawing, the, the, the little couple of people with their cats and their, it was fun to actually think back to when, um, back when the Island of Lost Souls was first teased at in the, the email newsletter back then. Um, I actually remember people thinking that that newsletter drawing was teasing at cat people. Um, but then in the, in the discussions around that newsletter drawing, there were, you know, that many people were saying, well, no, uh, even though Criterion had this on Laserdisc, that one is, you know, is being controlled by Warner Brothers. And so it's very unlikely that, you know, it's, it's unlikely that Criterion would get it because Warner Brothers doesn't license things out. And now all these years later, how things have changed. Yes. We're like, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you could almost look back at that drawing and think like, you know, we sometimes joke about how, you know, you can, you can make these uh, newsletter drawings fit whatever you want. And, you know, if you give it enough time, eventually you might be right. And so <laughs> I wonder those, if those people who, who guessed at this film being teased at in that drawing are like, see, it was a double clue. <laughs> This one was a part of a box set, a Val Luton box set, um, which many people had kind of hoped Criterion would maybe put all of them out together. Um, that seemed kind of a little, a uh, op- little too optimistic, and uh, but luckily, you know, those films are still available to be seen. Yeah, I think the Warner Archive just recently put out. Uh, a number of two-pack editions of the other films in that Val Luton box set, you know, things like Curse of the Cat People and um, the uh, and all the other ones. But this one uh, is a really beautiful, nice edition of the film. It's got a new cover from Bill Sienkiewicz, who had teased the artwork on Twitter uh, a while back. But it's got, you know, a new... Um, Let's see, it's got an audio commentary track. It has the Val Luton, The Man in the Shadows, 2008 full-length documentary. Um, I think Kent Jones was the one who was behind that. And then Mar- correct, Martin yeah. Scorsese narrates it. Uh, such a fun documentary. It's great. I mean, I almost in some ways enjoyed that more than the feature itself, just because I love the movie, but like I knew very little about Val Luton himself. And so to see that, to see all the, these, you know, the whole run of his movies being described, uh, in that documentary was just so enjoyable and it made me want to go and, you know, get the box set or, you know, find all these movies and watch them all maybe like in order to see like the, the rise and fall of his, uh, his power at RKO. I had, uh, I, I went to pop this in the other night and I didn't really have time to watch it. But when I started it, I realized that I had seen this on TCM a few years ago. So I opted out at this point, but yeah, it's a very good documentary. And um, it, that, that run that he had from 42 to 48 or whatever it was, that's quite a little uh, niche pocket of, of films that he did. Yeah. They're just these, these really nicely made uh, smaller horror movies, um, and not maybe not even horror in the in the in the in the sense that, or you know in the way that people might think they're just you know like little scary movies I guess, but um, mm-hmm. done it done in with a you know a nice kind of art house touch 
to them, especially, you know, starting things off with uh, Jacques Turner coming over to direct this movie. Um, it was also fun to to learn through the documentary that this one, you know, was is is one of those types of horror movies where we when we see this again and again in Hollywood over the years where it's this, you know, low, not maybe not low budget, but a, a lower budget movie that the studio didn't really think didn't have much faith in lower expectations lower expectations and it manages to just do gangbusters at the box office and mm-hmm. manage to you know uh send rko uh you know on a whole run of these movies like giving val Luton essentially like the the power to produce uh all the films that he went on to make yeah, yeah, this was a new film to me. I'd never seen it before, actually. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of a novice at all this, but my wife and I really enjoyed it. I, this is I, what she kind of called the spine tingler. It's not so much uh, yes. freaking you out with, with uh, you know, scary monsters or, you know, jump scenes. It's, it's more this creepy suspense, uh, weird lighting effects, sound effects. It's just kind of this very indirect way of unsettling the viewer and uh, uh yeah we we enjoyed it quite a bit actually it was a very uh, uh and and in the nice brief little you know 73 minute movie so it's not really asking a whole lot of you and uh you know just some interesting you know you know conflicts of some religious elements there some some macabre mysteries uh, and and just a lot of uh, left to the power of the imagination and so he kind of summoned up a lot of these fears and anxieties and i think uh, that that made this movie just you know very effective and 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 you're right some of those artistic touches the the scenes in the swimming pool and mm-hmm. you know the weird flickering lights and and all of that uh yeah, yeah very very enjoyable uh certainly uh, increased my my uh, intrigue and desire to you know dig into this val luton guy and i did not get to the documentary myself uh, which is probably a good you know half hour longer than the the main feature, yeah. but uh, yeah, this this seems like a pretty well rounded disc, and for someone like me, a nice introduction to a guy who probably deserves you know uh, more of my attention at least. What really stands out to me about the movie every time I see it is uh, that I always forget how late the real horror elements come into it. It's mm-hmm. mostly kind of about the beginnings of a marriage and a kind of troubled marriage, and a lot of the way they talk about. Uh, her affliction, shall we say, is kind of in the terms of experiencing mental illness. And so it's it has a real kind of human undercurrent to it. It's not just kind of like cheap scares, although it does cheap scares very well. Um, it has a lot of emotion riding through it, I think. You know, and speaking of the swimming pool, I, I have to say that I did not revisit the movie because I just I had just purchased the Laserdisc about six months ago and had watched it a few <laughs> weeks before this was announced. But um, speaking of the swimming pool, I was really pleased at the the John Bailey supplement because he he's he's been on a few discs before talking about other people's movies, but it was a pleasant surprise to to be reminded that he was the cinematographer on the remake of Cat People, mm-hmm. and it, it was interesting how he had mentioned in there that you know they paid homage to a few different scenes, but the swimming pool was about the only one they couldn't do any better. And so they just kind of did it the same. Although I saw this when I was 16 and Annette tool in the pool, I kind of made it a little better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. John Bailey, he is, you know, behind quite a few criterion films, you know, the big chill Mishima, um, you know, I guess if criterion ever gets swimming to Cambodia, but they also, you know, he also did a brief history of time. Um, mm-hmm. So some pretty good stuff. All right. Well, let's move on. 
sorry to be rushing through these titles so quickly, but uh, this is what happens when Criterion releases this many discs in one month. That's right. (laughs) So, Blood Simple, the second Coen Brothers Criterion Collection release, hopefully the second of many to come. Earlier this year, we learned that uh, Criterion was going to be getting an award at the San Francisco Film Festival that was going to be presented by the Coen Brothers, and that... uh, there was going to be a new screening of the restored edition of blood simple and that, you know, criterion and Janus essentially were going to be touring this new restoration. This one, uh, the 1984 film from the Coen brothers, this one has, uh, you know, new supplements, new cover art. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the conversation between Dave Eggers and the Coen brothers about the movie. Um, but there's also, you know, lots of other good stuff in here. So, but Keith, I know that you were really excited to, uh, you know, when this was announced, uh, we talked about this on the newsstand as well, but what, uh, now that you, now that you have the, the, the disc, what do you think? I think it's amazing. Um, I mean, this, this is really special to me. Uh, this came out, uh, the year I started college. It's one of the first movies that I saw that I went, wow, this is really cool and different, at least from what I was watching back then. Um, I'm from Minnesota. The Coen brothers are a big deal here. So, you know, even though this, this movie kind of made a bit of a splash back then in the movie community here in Minnesota, I mean, they talked about this all summer before it even came out, if I've got the timing right, but because it was all these, you know, local boys make good type stories. And I've been hooked on and I've been a huge Coen Brothers fan ever since. But this movie really, um, it's its a movie I probably saw a dozen times in college, um, showing it to anybody who would agree to look at it. Uh, you know, grainy and smudgy VHS copies. Um, you know, and of course, at the time, I was a big horror fan and it has it has so much of a shared pedigree with Sam Raimi and the, the first two evil deads. And, um, you know, it's just, again, it's just a movie that's incredibly special to me. And I was very happy to see this disc because, you know, it's only in the last couple of years, it seems that the Coen brothers have been willing to talk about their movies in any meaningful way. Um, and even then I think it's kind of hard for them and you need to bring in a Dave Edgars or a, or a Barry Sonnenfeld to actually keep the conversation going. But, um, you know, I was very pleased to get the original DVD that came out in 2001. Although, and as fun as it was, I was always disappointed that, you know, they took such a, it was a, it was a fun disc, but they took this uh, kind of self deprecating look at the movie with the, with the fake introduction and the fake commentary and everything. And I always thought that it deserved a little more than that. And I think that this disc has really made up for that. Um, it was really cool to see the interview with Carter Burwell, who I've been a huge fan of um, over the years. And his, his minimalist soundtrack on this movie is still one of my favorites. Um, and I, I, I've read that, you know, for these commentaries that they've used a telestrator before on other discs, not, not the Coens, but it's been used on discs before, but I thought it was a, a really neat conceit um, for them to watch the movie um, and to really cut it down to about 70 minutes. So we only got the part where they were actually saying something 
you know, they would go backwards in the film. Um, uh, <laughs> as Barry Sonnenfeld said, I mean, it seems like most of the time they were just making fun of the lighting um, and how um, incongruent and wrong it was, but uh, still very effective for the movie. Um, my only complaints on this is I don't know why they didn't talk to Dan Hedaya and um, I, I've always wondered if they had a falling out with John Getz because I, they never used him again. And, and boy, I think the guy could certainly have told some good stories about this movie. I mean, I think the last time I saw him was on a, some adult swim show recently. So um, I, I would have liked to have seen him get a, a little respect for what he put into this movie. But overall, um, wonderful transfer and just a uh, uh, one of my favorite packages of all time. I think you can still maybe buy the theatrical poster that Criterion or that Janice used for their for their screenings uh, on the Criterion website. Um, an interesting, you know, pair of of pieces of artwork. The the cover that they use versus that poster, both I think uh, are really nice. The the new 4K transfer of the movie looks beautiful on this Blu-ray. It does. It's just uh, it's amazing, and. Uh, It'll be. I'm interested to see, you know, where they go from here in this new little partnership. And yeah, like you were saying, it is nice that they're that they are talking about their films more. Like in the last in um, Inside Lewin Davis, they had I think Guillermo del Toro came on to talk with them, uh, yeah. you know, to get them to a little to open up a little bit about uh, their movie. And now here with Dave Eggers, I think it's uh, yeah, they're they're picking the the right people. I saw them in 2009 here in Minneapolis at the Walker Art Center. There's a Regis film series uh, that that's done, and Scott Foundas talked to them. This is at the time that A Serious Man came out, and um, you know they they really started to open up. And I almost feel like that was one of the first times that they did this because I remember sitting there and they actually said, you know, hey, this is a lot more fun than I thought it would be. So <laughs> I uh, and they also said in that when they were giving that award to Criterion last spring. I think that's where I saw it, where they just expressed their appreciation for a company that was, you know, putting their films out that actually got them. So, you know, maybe it's just a nice marriage. Yeah. I mean, even in that Filmstruck um, video that Criterion posted today about introducing Filmstruck, they include quotes from the Coen brothers uh, about that very topic. I think that must have been from the the, the San Francisco Film Festival uh, discussion with them. All right, well, let's move on now to the next release, the next pair of releases, The Valley of the Dolls and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Now, Valley of the Dolls uh, teased at back in the Wacky New Year's drawing. We had the little dolls uh, in, these, in the landscape. And then, you know, in June, we got the the announcement that Mark Robson's 1967 film was getting a new uh, Blu-ray release with it from a new 2K restoration uh, featuring a number of supplements which had been released previously, although this one now has a new video essay from Kim Morgan, uh, which is pretty great, I think. It is. And uh, let's see. So, Keith, you uh, had a chance to go through this one as well. Um, mm-hmm. How did this one hold up on, you know, like on a, on a rewatch for you? On a, well, I mean, there's, there's been so many rewatches. I can't uh, keep them all separate, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I kid. I haven't seen this that much, but I've certainly heard about it a lot over the years. And boy, talk about a, uh, talk about a, a diametric opposite to 
uh, story of the last chrysanthemum because yeah. this movie absolutely pops <laughs> on the screen as you were saying yes. um <laughs> you know this is one of those movies that that is so just so much fun to watch that i can't I, I I can't talk about it with any sort of point of view other than just I know this is a piece of shit and I just absolutely love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I kind of feel that way about beyond yeah. about beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Like same, like same. oh this yeah. movie is so terrible and like there's, there's so many things that I should not like about it, but it's just like you, it's like eating a bag of chips. <laughs> I don't know, like you just yep. can't not stop eating it. But you know, having seen the movie so much and it's so much part of the you know cultural zeitgeist that you know maybe we don't need to talk about the actual film itself but i found the supplements to be some a lot of fun and, and some just a exercise and willpower to get through i mean <laughs> the one that's like 45 minutes of a documentary with army archard and some other guy you know going on the going on the cruise from venice venice italy to venice california and mm. they would stop in all these ports and watch it i mean that it's such a microcosm and epitome of what that type of television looked like in the sixties. And from that vantage point, I really enjoyed it, but you know, taken by itself, that's really hard to watch. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it, it does put this, this film in context. And I think that is does. what kind of makes this, both of these packages, I guess are what you call criterion worthy because yeah, if this had just been a, a bare bones film like <laughs> like Last Chrysanthemum, which is like almost like here's this masterpiece, take it on its own terms, and here's a little supplement to give you some context. Well, mm-hmm. this one needs a whole lot of context in it my does. mind. Uh, although I will say that this is a film that does have a lot of iconic value to uh, many women, to the gay community, and and others who you know really lock in on these characters in a way that I probably just can't or ever will uh, other than maybe a you know very stereotypical voyeuristic aspect on on Sharon Tate <laughs> and, and and really oh, all yeah. the other beautiful yeah. women uh, but you're right this is not a movie or a story that was written for my demographic <laughs> exactly this is a this is a film uh, and a story written for for women I think primarily I mean Jacqueline Suzanne and and the the audience that she was addressing and the times that she was addressing it in, it is a pretty fascinating look at sort of mass middle class entertainment that has a certain kitschy, campy value to it, but also has some serious things to say, uh, although there is a comic effect in how much of it is said. So yeah, there's a lot of complexity in here. It might, it might be an interesting... Uh, you know, full-blown episode someday if we really want to get into these films because there's just so much, you know, grist to, to discuss here if we really want to start unpacking it. But, Let's you know, yeah, well, maybe we, we will set that up down the road somewhere. Yeah. But this is the kind of film that, you know, when I first saw these titles announced, it's like, okay, are, is there a little barrel scraping going on here or not? But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, this is a pretty fascinating release, uh, including those TV documentaries, the other one about uh, the career of Jacqueline Suzanne. And, I mean, when you think about a book that sold like almost 7 million copies within a few months of its release, that is pretty doggone viral, you know? And it's just, yeah. wow, what is it that grabbed so many people's attention and of course these things kind of get a life of their own once they catch on everybody has to see what it's about 
but it, it did have some staying power. And I think there's some real windows into the soul of sixties America, uh, that, that, that you can see here. And this is, you know, this came, this came out in the same year as Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, it, it's, you know, they talk about seventies American filmmaking, but to me that, that, that term actually means 67 to 77, you know, it starts with Bonnie and Clyde and goes to, goes to when Jaws or, or Star Wars came out and changed everything again. But, you know, there's just as much of the story here in that how salacious and, you know, slash pornographic Jacqueline Suzanne's novel was and how that affected just the people of the time. And then, and then to watch how they had, how they turned this into a movie that was, one, you know, breaking taboos for the screen, but also you can still see, you know, the constraints they had on taboos that they couldn't break. Yeah, it's it's a Maybe. remarkably square yeah. movie, really, yes. in, in yes. so many aspects, even though it's telling this kind of scandalous story. But it's, it, you know, but it's because they're stretching the boundaries of you know real respectable middle class suburbia. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's yeah, very fascinating. And those pills, I, I mean, I, I really would prefer this movie was called Valley of the Hot Tamales, but uh, it just, they're huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And then they're so beautiful, so glistening yeah, and bright. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, you're talking about the, you know, how, what this means to the gay community. And that's very apparent in that, you know, in that sit down that Patty Duke did with Bruce Valanche um, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, she's she's very good about it. I mean, she's she's very honest that, um, you know, th- this was a movie that she was um, just abhorred to find out how bad she thought it turned out, and then to see the love that it got years later, you know, it did it did mean a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, David, I, I'm. It's too bad that you have already passed this point uh, in your <laughs> Criterion Reflections, just because I think. I think I had mentioned this on the newsstand, but when we talked about these titles coming up, but like this movie came out like a week before or after a week before the graduate came out. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's like such an interesting pair of movies to come out so close to one another. And like, you know, at such an interesting point in, you know, this, this period of American history. Okay. Well, we'll get it up in the main episodes. Uh, somewhere in 2017 i'll I'll, I'll bank on that (laughs) uh i have to mention that i really love the the illustration that they used for the cover phil noto is a comic book illustrator who uh criterion has finally gotten to work with them and so i i think they he did he has a great style and uh this one i think looks great i completely agree um I, I I enjoyed those TV the Hollywood backstories episode uh, on mm-hmm. on this. Um, you know, learning about the whole saga with Judy Garland and, um, you know, I, I I had kind of like I think I knew some of those stories in the back of my head when I was watching these this movie over the years. But like, it was nice to you know those those aren't like the it's not like the nicest documentary about it, but it's still you know very interesting and I think gives you just more of the backstory. And you get an actual honest to goodness booklet in in this package and also in beyond. Uh, yeah. that's that's nice. They they deluxed it up a little bit. Yeah, it is nice. You also get to see 
Tony Scotty lip syncing in a gondola. I mean, what, what more do you need? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls also released the same week as Valley of the Dolls, uh, as we as as many have noted in various places. Like, you know, these two movies are an interesting pair. You know, obviously not. It, it, they made a conscious decision to not make it a uh, a box set where you had to buy both. But right. uh, where you could, you know, where you could own both. And, you know, they're they're clearly kind of like a pair of movies that can be watched together and have connective tissue between them. But, you know, if you wanted to, you could just pick one or the other and still, you know, get a whole lot of enjoyment out of them. Well, there's so much 45 years later, there's so much of a story to tell about the two of them together, especially when you talk about, you know, as David mentioned, Sharon Tate, you know, we, we watch... We watch Valley of the Dolls knowing that she died or was murdered and, you know, she she kills herself in the movie, which is sad and kind of weird. And and then you get to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls where it's almost like they're, you know, commenting on her murder in some ways. It's it's they really it's it's really, really interesting to look at both of them together. Mm-hmm. The Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, um, you know, obviously not a sequel but still kind of a, a, a follow-up, I guess, to to Valley of the Dolls in a way. You know, Russ Meyer directing this movie that was co-written by Roger Ebert. Um, you know, kind of notorious, I guess, in a way. Or, you know, it has such a... There's a lot of baggage, I guess, that comes with this movie uh, as well. Right. In the end, though, it still is a fun, crazy, silly, dumb movie. That That little bit of fun, though, like... You know, even if it's cheesy or there's corny lines or um, there's just like gratuitous nudity or, you know, drug use or whatever, like it's still it it, it just like scratches this itch for me. Yeah. Well, I, I will say I, I I had never seen this one before, but I started watching it a little bit last night and just wasn't feeling it. But that was probably because I was getting ready to talk about uh, Mizuguchi's uh, yeah, Women of the yeah. Night and Street of Shame. And it's like, <laughs> you know, those are blistering critiques of uh, the brutal exploitation of women. And it's like, I, I can't really watch this movie uh, with Mizuguchi on my mind. So That's a very, it, it, very good point. It's a mood piece, I guess. You just got to sort of let some things go. But it is, yeah, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, you know, pretty trashy, pretty, pretty vulgar, uh, pretty uh, outrageous. And, and gleefully so. So I'm sure there will be those those times when it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be in the mood and it'll be there waiting for me. Yeah, it's so hard to force sometimes to, to I mean, to put yourself, to make yourself watch a movie when you're not ready for it. Like this, sometimes you just have to, you know, put it off and wait until you're, okay, now I'm ready for it. Now I'm not like immersed in, you know, feminist filmmaking. I'm yep. Now it's time to like, let's just... Uh, you know, watch something like this on this level. You can usually figure that out in about the first three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, this this is not speaking to me tonight. Well, this is a movie that I've seen quite a few times. Uh, I Actually, I didn't own the Laserdisc, but I had a friend who lent it to me a couple of times. And this is one of those movies where, you know, I have to say that I, the first couple of times I, I, I didn't really get it. It just seemed garish and stupid and over the top and now i love it and it's garish and stupid and over the top so it's it's just it's what you bring to it um you know 
it seems that the people hang their hat on the fact that Roger Ebert wrote the screenplay mm -hmm. and, you know, he was always very unapologetic about it. Loves this movie. He was a, he was a breast man, just like Russ Meyer was, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting too, to see that we get a Mizuguchi movie and a Meyer movie in the same month where, <laughs> you know, you look at story of the last chrysanthemum, which is these long stately takes you know, I think I read that there's like in the whole Chrysanthemum movie, there's like 140, 140 takes in the whole thing. It's two and a half hours. And then you've right. got Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. There's one scene that's um, 21 seconds long and they and they cut 42 times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, that's completely. the criterion spectrum right right exactly. there in a nutshell. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I have to say, I know we're kind of going around and about on this one, but um the John Waters interview on this is worth the price of admission. I mean, I've heard him talk for years, but he is he is on on this one. He's hilarious. The so um I guess a little bit of uh interesting trivia about this release, the folks at Arrow uh, also released this film this year uh, as a limited edition version. Uh, their limited edition release of it included the um, the rarely seen film The Seven Minutes, um, which was, uh, I guess, one of the last or the last film that Russ Meyer did in Hollywood. Um, but that one was limited; it sold out, and now Arrow is reissuing the Blu-ray this month. Uh, as a non-limited edition, but it doesn't include that the the seven minutes, uh, which was a standard definition version of it, uh, you know, on that release. But um, the the releases are comparable as far as like transfer goes. I think that the the image might look a little bit different, but both are you know beautiful and you know um, schlocky, I guess. But that was interesting because you know they've got four or five short documentaries on here back from the Fox disc of 10 years ago, you know, I mean, there's good information in them, but they're cheesily done. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, it was 10 years ago that there was a lot of scuttlebutt that Criterion was going to put this out. And actually the Roger Ebert's commentary was recorded for Criterion. He mentions Criterion on it. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, then Fox decided to do it themselves. And then they put, you know, these four or five somewhat cheesy documentaries on it. And 10 years later, you know, Criterion puts them on their disc. You know, they, they certainly don't have the Criterion vibe to them, but they're, they're still fun. Yeah. Glenn Kenny wrote essays for both of them. That's another little bit of connective tissue. And there's the illustrated covers. I think they mm -hmm. do kind of go nicely side by side, but it's not the same artist. So another way of sort of emphasizing the distinction and the, and the break in the, yeah, you know, there, there's a connection in the similar subject matter, young women finding their way in show business. But uh, from there, <laughs> the roads diverge quite dramatically. They sure do. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on now to uh, the last release of the month. and The most natural transition in the world. <laughs> right, from, from, <laughs> from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls to the 10-hour uh, series of the Decalogue from Christoph Krzyzlowski. 
This oh, one. this wasn't Russ Meyer. <laughs> Russ Meyer. <laughs> he has a cameo though, just out of nowhere. He just wanders in and starts talking about boobs. Isn't he the guy that's and... like at the at the lake, you know, with the campfire? Exactly. Yeah. There's there's subtext. It's kind of subtle, but you can you can catch him kind of mouthing the word boobs. Boobs. Yes, that's the only time um, I've ever heard the words subtle Russ Meyer subtext in a sentence before. <laughs> <laughs> the only time they ever apply is by a lie. Uh, yes, so this is the 10-hour Polish miniseries uh, that cinephiles have kind of claimed as one of their own. You know, it's undoubtedly one of the great works of television, and yet it has become for us uh, one of the great works of cinema because that's how uh, us cinephiles tend to roll from time to time. We mm-hmm. dismiss TV until we need it. <laughs> um, but it's a really outstanding uh, achievement on many levels. A full disclosure for the listeners, I haven't really dug into the actual Blu-ray release, so... Um, if listeners are keen on the uh, compression issues that have been hotly debated amongst the specialist forums, look elsewhere for me because I don't care that much. Uh, but the restorations do look quite outstanding. I saw them over the course of about a week at a theater here in Los Angeles, and I highly, highly recommend that they be watched in that uh, kind of limited time frame in some way. You know, however you can fit them in would be ideal. I wouldn't recommend, you know, uh, binging them all on a single day because they are quite devastating works, uh, each and every one of them. But two at a time goes down very smoothly. Uh, they are loosely based on the Ten Commandments and are not even in order they're in. Uh, I know at least the fifth and sixth are kind of flipped and there might be other kind of moving around. I can't remember exactly. But, uh, you know, that's kind of separate from the experience of watching them. The kind of selling point that Janice pointed out in their trailer was from Roger Ebert who spotlighted them as kind of you know intrinsically human stories and very uh, immediate and involving works of drama that you don't need to be like a philosophy scholar or a religious scholar or anything to kind of get what Kieslowski is all about here because that's only kind of one part of what he's doing and I think that really holds into the such an extent that uh, the 10th is in fact kind of an out and out uh, comedy as far as you know, communist countries go and that uh, it's a dark comedy, but it is uh, very funny. Uh, but the others are just really, really thoughtful, mesmerizing works that I think anybody who's seen the double life of Veronique or the three colors trilogy would kind of expect at this point from Kislowski. Uh And yeah, I just, I was completely caught up in every one of them. I think the ninth episode was probably my favorite Uh Others kind of point at the to five and six as kind of the highlights of the series, and I can see why those were the ones that were expanded into a short film about killing and a short film about uh, love, which I have not seen in their full editions. But I very much look forward to as soon as the some sale happens that can bring the price down this a little bit. But um, yeah, the new restorations done by I think the Poland something or other they're they're done in Poland at any rate and released. On Blu-ray there first. Luckily, Criterion has presented them in their original aspect ratios, whereas the Polish box set thought fit to crop the films for no good reason. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, here we get uh, the, the full the full goodness. Um, five and six are actually shot in widescreen, so don't be alarmed as I was when they came up and were in widescreen. Uh, but the others are kind of in that full frame, boxy ratio, and they're just, yeah, they're just gorgeous all around. You know, some might say that the grain is maybe too finely scrubbed, uh, I didn't really find that to be a terribly big issue. I, I still found the lighting and the kind of mood that infects every what, every episode to really come through. And uh, they're, they're pretty dynamic works, actually. They're shot mostly by different cinematographers. I think like four or five different cinematographers mm-hmm. worked on the set. And so you have kind of a different look to each episode. 
that I think they really honored with the transfers. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to check out the rest of the box that the supplements look outstanding, but perhaps somebody else on the show here has uh, at least opened the package and kind of (laughs) wandered around. No, I definitely have uh, gone in and watched them and watched the fourth disc. And, um, you know, so Criterion split this up into four discs. The first two discs contain the first 10 or, you know, the 10 episodes, um, uh, five on each disc. And then the third disc includes a short film about killing a short film about love. And then the fourth disc is the supplements, which include an interview with Annette Insdorf and, uh, an interview with the, who is the woman that is on that interview? I forgot her name, but she worked with Kozlowski and, um, oh, I think it's with, uh, Hannah Kral, I think maybe is the, one of the, the interviews that I watched, but, um, yeah, I, I, I've seen some of the, the, the debates about, you know, how this looks and, you know, Criterion's decision to put, you know, five episodes on a disc as opposed to what Arrow is, uh, planning on doing with their version of the Decalogue, which is going to have, I think, two films per disc, um, and so it'll be spread out across many more discs and it will also be, um, feature, it'll be, I think the uh, criteria uh, arrow is going to be doing the PAL 1080i version of it. Whereas criterions is 1080p. Um, and while, and so it, you know, this is to say like that criterions may be a little bit slower than what was, uh, initially shot and screened at when it was shown i think it's about 22 minutes overall across 10 hours Hmm. so you know i guess that might be an issue for some people and uh you know if you're a stickler for this stuff then i would say you know maybe look into or wait and see how the reviews turn out for the arrow release but uh i had no problem watching it i think these episodes look gorgeous on this blu-ray and you know if you're if you're if you're not region free then this is your this is your option and i think it's a beautiful option i think the packaging uh is gorgeous i think they really did a great job with just coming up with that iconic look you know that iconic image of like you know the the 10 pieces the little 10 10 black squares that they've used uh, as the cover and then it's you know kind of um used in various forms throughout the the artwork inside and at insdorf uh her interview on here she I'm pretty sure she showed up on the the Three Colors trilogy also as uh, mm-hmm. in the supplements there and yeah I think she's done every Kislovsky release uh, she, yeah um, yeah I really enjoyed listening to her talk about it I mean she really gets into discussing the the themes that are are used across the films and you know like recurring images and whatnot that that Kislovsky, uh incorporates into it um. I think in this era of, you know, Netflix and people binge watching, you know, television in these 10 episode chunks, like this, um, you know, fits right alongside some of the, like, you know, the more beautiful, uh, you know, pieces of television that we've seen, uh, recently on, you know, on HBO or on AMC, like, you know, the stuff that are, or on Cinemax or, you know, things like when we have people like Soderbergh working on the Nick or, um, you know, someone like uh you know like the the first season of true detective where we have like these long form films essentially split up into 10 parts like this you know this should be rediscovered i think by a lot of people who are 
uh, out there. And now that the Criterion has this Blu-ray, I think um, many will. But you know, like you said, it is kind of expensive, and it is, um, and we are right around the corner from a sale, and so uh, I'm sure a lot of people haven't picked it up yet. And um, I can't blame them for that. I mean, it's 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 expensive. Um, but you know, it should certainly be on your wish lists or, you know, your shopping cart, it should be in your shopping cart for when that sale comes around. And like, you know, like what was mentioned, uh, if Criterion has a flash sale, I have to imagine that this is going to be one of the first things to sell out, uh, when, yeah. when that happens. It'll get you right to that $50 free shipping limit right there, yeah. right? Yeah. It'll be right under, though. Oh, that's, that's where that's they get right. you. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get that coffee mug, another coffee mug. Yeah. <laughs> Buy a coffee mug or a gift certificate. The gift certificates right. are the, the, the way to get you know free shipping and then you know have money for a future purchase. Good point. Yeah, my, my viewing of this is um, from years ago on a Laserdisc, so um, I'm sure I'll be very pleased compared to my memory of before. Um, which is not good because I barely, I don't even remember the stories. So I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I just remember this doing old this. apartment building. <laughs> yeah, yep. I, I I did a library uh, borrow rental thing years ago as well, and I'm not sure I got a, all through all ten episodes. I got through several, and they were they were intriguing. But I was I was just a, a burgeoning young cinephile at the time. Same so. here. And it's funny you mention <laughs> that because that's all I remember is that apartment building. One of the one of the shows that my wife and I are binge watching right now is the AMC show Halt and Catch Fire, which takes place in the eighties and deals with, you know, like the you know, changes in computer technology and whatnot. And rewatching the you know, the first episode of the Decalogue with the the father and the son who are kind of like, you know, they have the, the computers in the house that do the different things for them. It was just it was kind of eerie to see those, you know, to have halt and catch fire in the back of my mind as I'm watching this first episode of the Decalogue, but they totally fit. Hmm. Did the computers also come to life in uh, halt and catch fire? <laughs> Not yet, but uh, maybe uh, someday. Yeah, um, that episode, that first episode, just like starts you off uh, by kicking you in the stomach. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I I hope I get a chance to see these on the big screen at some point in my life. I, don't, I didn't see that. I think they came to Portland and I must've just missed them, but um, it is a big time commitment to, you know, to commit to watching all 10, I guess if you, if you commit to watching all 10. Yeah. And I mean, they were made for TV, so there's nothing wrong with watching them at home either. And yeah. probably made for uh, less ideal viewing conditions than we have today. You know, you mm -hmm. can't imagine that in the late eighties in Poland, the TV uh, quality was as good as our high definition screens are now. Right. Absolutely. And they got to look better than Berlin. Alexander Platt, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, do you have any other thoughts on on this or any of the other films um, that we've talked about tonight? I mean, I, I know it's late uh, where you are, David, and so we can start wrapping things up so we don't keep you up too much later. But um, mm -hmm. do we have any, any, any final thoughts uh, on tonight's episode or the films released from Criterion? As we've mentioned, there are a lot of them. And it was kind of hard to squeeze them all in amidst all of our other uh, duties. But uh, that that being said, it is still a joy to watch these films. Yeah, it's a, it's another outstanding month and what's been a pretty you know, remarkable year. And so, yeah, it's just you know a, a wealth of riches. Uh, no complaints. Just uh, you know a little bit of uh, mopping of the brow <laughs> as we try to keep up with the quality of it all and right. and uh, try and try to try to give these films. Uh, 
you know, the kind of sustained uh, attention and reflection they deserve. So, and yeah, no time to catch our breath. October's here and uh, there's new stuff coming out already. So on we go. Onward and upward. All right, everyone. Well, uh, while you're looking for new episodes to download, you should check out the latest episodes of the Eclipse Viewer, where David and Trevor and Scott are discussing the Mizuguchi films. Um, those one, so the first episode is up. You're going to be splitting this into three parts, I think. No, no, just two. The two. Oh, just, we, well, just two. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Last Chrysanthemum was kind of a, a mid, uh, you know, midterm there, and then we uh, just recorded the. Um, uh, the last two films in the Mizuguchi's Fallen Women. And then, uh, you know, Keith is planning to join us. we still got to work out the dates and times, but we're going to be covering uh, the big blockbuster, the Louis Mal documentaries. And so that probably will be a three-part episode just because there's... Nine parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, a lot of stuff to cover there, and uh, either, either long episodes or uh, a, a rough run through and i think we want to stretch it out a little bit there so yeah that's probably our next part we i'm not sure we'll be able to get them all done in october but that's our plan and uh we'll uh, just keep plugging away so after the louis mal what is what is left that you all have uh, yeah we have the nikatsu noir we have the de vivier set uh, we have uh post-war kurosawa and we have uh late ozu i think that might be it so yeah we're getting down to you know just a handful of eclipse sets that have not been uh, covered yet on the eclipse viewer so uh, the end isn't quite in sight but uh we sense it approaching yeah if you wow. if you split those up enough you probably have another year worth of uh ep- episodes <laughs> yeah to release. I, I would imagine the duvivier is probably going to be the only set that we we cover in one episode and we might even split those up into two i mean aaron has suggested that we stretch that one out as well but yeah these these last few that we've saved really are pretty you know, pretty major as far as the Eclipse series goes. I mean, each one's I've just named off. Uh, you know, the Kurosawa, Ozu, Nikatsu Noir, and Mal. Those are those are all pretty heavy hitters uh, among the more popular sets, and just a lot of content they cover there. So I'm I'm really relishing that, and uh, yeah, we've got some good months ahead of us there. Just a couple of weeks ago, Keith, you released the fourth hour in your Criterion Completion podcast. Um, what you want to talk a little bit about what's going on? Uh, over at your show these days and what you're working on? Sure. Um, hour five is going to post probably in a couple, for like two weeks from this weekend. Um, it's going to be an interesting show. I'll be talking to one of our Australian friends. Uh, I won't mention it yet, but uh, one of our Australian friends and what he goes through to be Criterion Complete with uh, all of that... Uh, shipping and delays and costs and everything it'll be a pretty good conversation then i'm also going to go through um michael hutchins on the facebook group as we all know loves to crunch numbers and he's crunched some numbers for me and i'm going to do an episode uh a little you know uh essay so to speak on you know criterion by the numbers and we'll see how that turns out but i'm really looking forward to that and um, I've got guests lined up through um, most of the winter, so we're just—I'm just plugging along. And then for our mainline episodes, I have a couple of uh, ideas planned for October. 
kind of genre horror films uh, in the collection that we'll be discussing over the next few weeks. So look forward to uh, some fun titles that we haven't done before. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much again for downloading the show and all the feedback that you send us for these episodes of Chronicles. Now, before we get too far into this uh, this opening discussion here, uh, tonight we're recording this on October 6th, and earlier today, Criterion and the folks at Filmstruck finally announced their pricing levels and the details of the launch of the service. So this is something that we've been talking about since April now, or I guess late April, early May was when this was first announced, that Criterion was going to be moving away from Hulu to Filmstruck, which was the new streaming service that Turner was going to be launching. Uh, it's almost here. We're just a couple of weeks away from the October 19th launch date uh, of the service. We have pricing levels now to kind of gauge uh, how hard this is going to hit our wallets. And it doesn't seem like it's going to hit our wallets all that much uh, if we're able to, you know, justify spending... Uh, you know, like buying a few discs a year works out to about the same price as buying Filmstruck for uh, a year. So I think I think they made a, a fair but, you know, like reasonable decision when it came to the pricing levels. Um, I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised. I was thinking it was going to be much higher than it ended up being. But uh, I think <laughs> I think they were also uh, maybe cautious in that area. Well, I was thinking it was the article on Variety that I read earlier today that I forget I forget the name of the company or the subsidiary that's working with um, Turner on this or whichever part of the conglomerate you want to talk about. But they re- it seems that they are really looking at this as kind of a test case for how much they can do um, as far as this narrower um, narrower uh, interest um, streaming. So I, I think they're kind of pulling out all the stops on us to see how this is going to go, and they're probably going to go in other directions as well. Uh, we will probably have an episode of the newsstand where we talk about this a little bit more uh, in depth, but I thought I would just bring it up here since it just happened today, and we're all gathered around to talk about Criterion, so it just seems silly to not address it since, since it was on, you know, it's on all of our minds, and it's been something that we've been talking about for so long now. But it seems I like just like as a I just like as a beta user that I get uh, the first 10 weeks free. That, <laughs> that makes it even better. I know they are being uh, suspiciously generous to the beta users. Uh, <laughs> like here we get we, I didn't get that email. <laughs> we already gave you this free thing. And now here's let's just give you even more, even though you're all probably willing to pay for this thing that you've been using for free. That's the secret. Yeah. Well, they are definitely making lifelong customers out of lifelong customers already. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they've, they've mentioned, you know, there's a nice article from Jonathan Terrell and Peter Becker over on the Criterion Current where they talk about, you know, a lot of the reasons that went into them going over to Filmstruck and what they hope to get out of it and what they're going to be putting into it. 
Um, one of the things that they mention uh, down in the article is the fact that they're going to be bringing back out-of-print supplements, including the commentary track from Silence of the Lambs, which is going to be fascinating to see just how they end up doing the commentaries, just because I don't think from reading about the experiences of beta users, I don't think there were any commentary tracks available during the beta, but I guess we'll see uh, what what how it ends up being, you know, in in practice. They also mentioned, you know, just out of print films or currently out of print criterion films like uh, the unbearable lightness of being I saw was mentioned, and that's a that's a pretty rare, you know, old school criterion DVD. And so you do wonder, well, you know, if, if a quality edition of that, uh, perhaps even with supplements, is available, what does that do to the, the secondary market for, uh, you know, out-of-print discs? I mean, if you can really watch the movie and get everything uh, that there is to be seen on the disc right there in your stream, you know, uh, except for the, you know, physical media obsessives, are, are the prices going to uh, start plummeting on, on the... Uh, and the used market, or or uh, will there be uh, just a, a lack of interest in, in collecting uh, some of the rarer titles uh, that Criterion's put out over the years? I don't know. Like the the Third Man, for example, that one there was the you know there's the Criterion edition on Blu-ray, but then there's that you know newer reissue of the Blu-ray or of, of the new the new 4K Master, I guess, from that's available in the UK and in Europe. Um, but it seems like the the Criterion Blu-ray, because it's still out of print, is still going for a lot of money. I mean, and there's even the the other the, the Studio Canal Blu-ray that of the Third Man here in the States. So it seems like even if there are other options available for consumers, like those Criterion out of print discs, still bring in or you know still can ask for lots of money. Well, we don't have to go far too far down this hole, but. Uh, I mean, it's probably safe to say that most people will be signing up for this. I have seen a lot. So they, they've, Filmstruck has has touched on what services they will be launching on, including things like um, the Amazon Fire and the Apple TV and the web and the Apple TV and then also like the iPad. Um, they've they've mentioned other platforms that they're that they're considering and that they're working on, but. Um, those ones won't be coming until next year. And so I wonder how them not being on things like the Roku, I guess the Roku is probably the one that I've seen people requesting the most and the one that they, people have seemed most concerned with them not being a, uh, you know, know, not having an app on, uh, on day one. I wonder how that will affect people's decisions towards, you know, like subscribing or how long, if, if they have to wait, you know, until next year, like how that will affect them wanting to, to sign up at all. Well, I think it gives the ability a few months down the road for them to, um, you know, create a little more buzz again with, hey, now you can come check it out here and there'll be all sorts of us talking about it again. So yeah, might not be so bad. Well, I would recommend if anyone is, you know, a Roku user and um, you're kind of sad about this, I would say, you know, look at the Amazon Fire Stick as an option. You know, I almost I, I bought it when it was first launched back, you know, whenever with Amazon Fire Stick, just as like, oh, well, this looks like a neat toy to play with. And so, um, and it was kind of affordable at the time. Um, I think right now they're around $40 for that. And I would say like, that's a a worthwhile investment. You know, it functions in in many of the same ways as a Roku box. And so if you want 
just the the cheapest way to get in on filmstruck uh even if you have a roku box already i would say just you know maybe just get that fire stick and um test it out because it might you know help might move you away from uh from the roku the very least tied you over